If you'd open your Bibles tonight to Revelation chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 19, which say this, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, And the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious word, and thank you for the people who are out tonight to partake of it. We pray that you would work in our minds and hearts, and we pray that you would just cause us to gain the stability we need to cope with a, frankly, an evil world. I just pray that as we go through the word of God, you would just do a wonderful work by the power of the Holy Spirit in each of our minds and hearts, and we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You and I live in a world in which men believe it is possible for them to bring in a great kingdom without God. All of the nations of the world and all the political leaders actually believe that. They believe through their party and through their shrewd decisions and through their politics, they can bring a great kingdom to the land without God. But when you look into the scriptures, it's interesting that Daniel says that God calls these government leaders beasts. That's the way he views them. Because not too many of them are really interested in putting him first at all. And the truth of the matter is, in the tribulation, God says, I've had enough of it. I've had enough of these beasts. I've had enough of their political nonsense. I've had enough of them ruining things, ruining people's lives. I've had enough of their government power that's pulling people away from me. So he just basically says, I've had enough. Now, the night of an election, there is usually one of the candidates obviously wins. And for that particular individual who wins, there is a celebration, almost a party for the candidate who won. And even though there will be a time gap between the celebration and the inauguration, there is great anticipatory joy before it actually happens. And that's what happens here. Only this one's coming out of heaven. It's a party. It's a celebratory worship service that actually realizes God's going to just wipe those political leaders off the face of the map. And it's not a sad moment in heaven, as you'll see tonight. Now, Revelation 11.14 says that the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So the final three trumpet judgments are three woe judgments. Trumpet judgment number five is woe judgment number one. Trumpet judgment number six is woe judgment number two. And trumpet judgment number seven is woe judgment number three. 
In verse 14 of Revelation 11, we read the third woe is coming quickly. What we would expect to see is an immediate implementation of wrath on the earth. What we don't expect to see is a major celebration in heaven, but it's like those in heaven just can't wait any longer. They break out in praise because they realize he's going to wipe them out. And in view of the place where this sits in God's prophetic plan and revelation, we suspect that one reason for this celebration is that the wrath of God, which has been targeting the world, is now specifically going to turn toward Israel, and people in heaven understand we're bringing this to a finale. God is going to end this. We may recall that the Great Tribulation is a time in which God pours out his wrath and judgment on a Christ-rejecting, God-mocking, Bible-hating world. As you'll see tonight, the leadership of this world is angered by the thought of God running it. I mean, it angers them. They really get revved up when they think of the fact that God would run the world. They're enraged by that thought. But those that are in heaven are excited at that thought. They're in heaven and they're rejoicing and the things are about to turn toward Israel. The Jewish people are going to now become the full target of the things of God in the tribulation. God's going to regather the nation Israel because we know, according to Matthew 23 and we know, according to Luke 13, that the nation Israel is going to one day cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're getting near that point where this nation is going to go through what they're going to experience. They're getting near the point where they're going to cry out to the Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as we in heaven anticipate that, there's this outbreak of celebration, worship. What we see here is when the final trumpet judgment is announced, there will be tremendous worship service that will take place at the throne of God. What a contrast this will be to what's happening here on earth. I mean, on earth you have people terrified in heaven, they're rejoicing. On earth you have people afraid of God in heaven, they're praising God. On earth there's evil chaos and in heaven you have reverent worship. What a contrast. Now there are two specific observations I want to make about this seventh trumpet judgment when it begins. First of all, the seventh trumpet judgment begins with the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, verse 15, that the seventh angel sounded. I want to be real clear on this trumpet business so we don't get confused on this because this does confuse certain people. There are, as far as I can tell, when you get to this point in the tribulation, there are three final trumpet judgments, three final blasts of a trumpet that will signal three final things. Now, the first one will be to the rapture of the church. The church age is going to end by a trumpet blast. If you want to see that, go to 1 Corinthians 15 quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And here we have the last thing that will be in the church age. This is it. This brings the church age to a finale. This is not the trumpet thing we're reading about tonight in Revelation. This is the trumpet that brings the church age to its conclusion. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 52, we read, In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. That's the rapture. This is the last thing about the church age. It'll be this trumpet blast. So you have that one that's a last trumpet judgment of the church age. Then you have this last trumpet judgment of the tribulation judgments. 
which is inaugurated here tonight. That's the one we're looking at with his seventh trumpet blast. And then you have one more trumpet blast that will occur at the end of the tribulation period when God regathers people. Flip over to Matthew 24 for just a moment. Go over to Matthew chapter 24. And I draw your attention to verse 29. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with, here we go, a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So when we're examining these passages here in Revelation, you can't just say, well, because it's a trumpet judgment, it's the same as the others, because they're not the same. We have three last trumpet blasts yet to go. One at the end of the rapture, one here in Revelation chapter 11, and one when Jesus Christ returns. Now the seventh trumpet judgment is going to be a trumpet judgment that contains the worst wrath of God period that exists in the tribulation. It will feature seven bold judgments, which will lead to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The essence of where this judgment eventually leads is found in the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 8 to chapter 14 and verse 11. And in Zechariah 14, 9, I don't have time to take us there tonight, but that whole text ends with a crescendo that basically says the Lord will be king over the earth. That's where this is all headed. This is all headed to a moment when the Lord's going to be king over the earth. Terrible persecution will break out against Israel. As a prelude to the second coming of Jesus Christ, we learn in Zechariah that one-third of Israel will survive this. Two-thirds won't. Two-thirds of the nation Israel won't. There are nearly 15 million Jewish people in the world today. And if we base our calculations on that number, what that means is only 5 million of the 15 million are going to survive. That's all going to be part of that seventh trumpet judgment. What we learn here is this judgment is announced. It's sanctioned in heaven. It's sanctioned by the throne of God. And Dr. Charles Ryrie made an important statement when he said, the end is near enough now that the announcement of it can be made. So with great anticipation, when this seventh trumpet is blown, there is this tremendous worship service that takes place, which brings us to the second observation. When the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, a tremendous worship service will take place in heaven, verses 15 to 19. There are six prophetic worship facts that are brought out in this. The first fact is it's going to be loud. We read in verse 15, the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven. This worship service here is not going to be some quiet prayer meeting. This is going to be loud voices here. We may recall when the seventh seal was initially opened, there was a half hour of silence. Now, I'm assuming, based on that data, that when we talk about loud things, we're talking about things people can hear here on earth. I really actually believe that at this point in the tribulation. Everyone knows that this judgment is coming right from God, right from the throne of God. And they realized there was a half hour of silence on earth. And I think when the seventh trumpet judgment occurs and it'll feature loud worship, they're going to hear it. They're going to know something major is going on there in heaven. 
Now, loud does not mean out of control. It's an adjective, mega in Greek. It means these voices are loud in the sense of size, in the sense of intensity and rank. This is as high as it gets. You're at the throne of God. You have these voices that are at the throne of God, and it's a loud worship service with booming voices taking place. And again, I think it could be heard on earth. Later in this very text, you'll see there's going to be thunder roaring, and certainly people on earth are going to hear that. So it's not too much of a stretch to think they're going to hear these loud voices and what they're saying. Now, the second worship fact is the worship service is in heaven. Verse 15 says, and there were loud voices in heaven. This worship service is being held in heaven, and the Greek text literally reads, in the heaven. So you're talking about the throne of God here. You're talking about the heaven where God resides, and that's where this service is taking place. So while people are living in fear on earth, and while people are cowering in fear on earth, there's this worship service that's being conducted in heaven, and my suspicion is the people on earth are going to hear it and know what's going on. But what a contrast. What a contrast. Great things going on in heaven. Horrible things going on on earth. You know, we had a, I felt, as John brought out in his prayer, we had a great day of worship this morning at church. But you know, here we were in church experiencing great worship, great music, great hymns, great special music today with that trio. And what a passage to look at in the book of Romans. It was great worship this morning here. But go to Detroit this morning. Great disaster there. Because this morning in Detroit, four were shot and three dead. They still haven't caught the guy. So here, on the one hand, we're at the Church of God experiencing wonderful worship. On the other hand, out there in the world, there's just great disaster. That's what's happening here. You have great worship that's taking place in heaven during this point of time, and you have total disaster and chaos that's going on on earth. And people in heaven are worshiping God, having a good time with it. Now, the third fact is the worship service anticipates Christ's kingdom. Now, I'm going to need to talk about this. Verse 15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, it's clear that this worship service is about the kingdom that's about to be established on earth by Jesus Christ. And the voices cry out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And I want you to notice, Jesus Christ is identified as his Christ. Jesus Christ is God's only Jewish Messiah, and he's using that noun here specifically because this is about to turn to Israel, and he wants people to understand there's this worship service that's taking place as now things turn toward Israel, toward your Messiah, who's none other than Jesus Christ. We learn that the proper noun Christ is defined as Messiah in John 1.41, which says we found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. So the noun Christ means Messiah. Jesus Christ is declared in heaven to be Lord, and he's declared to be Messiah for Israel. Now, here is one time where, frankly, the King James Bible is, in my opinion, dead wrong. If you like the King James Bible, praise God, read it every day. Hope you enjoy the language of it. It's great. But the King James Bible says kingdoms plural. 
Kingdoms, plural, of this world are become kingdoms of our Lord. That's the way it translates it. And here's one point where both the Textus Receptus, which was Erasmus' Greek text, and the English translation are both wrong. Now, Erasmus did not have access to much of the book of Revelation in his Greek manuscript. So what he decided to do was to take and translate many passages into Greek from the Latin Vulgate. Because he didn't have access to, especially in a book like Revelation, to many of the manuscripts that were available. But as near as I can determine in studying the Latin Vulgate, the noun kingdom in the Vulgate is singular, not plural either. And the vast majority of Greek manuscripts don't support plural kingdoms. So our conclusion based on that research is that Erasmus made a mistake. And the King James English Bibles have included the mistake and it's been there ever since 1611. Because the Greek text uses an articular singular noun, the kingdom. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught his disciples to pray that his kingdom singular would come. When Isaiah predicted that a divine child would be born who would have the government on his shoulders, who would sit on the throne of David, he said he will reign over his kingdom singular. And when the Apostle Paul spoke of the end, he said there will be a moment when he hands over the kingdom singular to God and the Father. Now that's important, ladies and gentlemen, to realize. Because the kingdom singular right now is controlled by the evil one all over the world. He is, as Paul called him, the God of this world. He is, as Paul called him, the power of the air. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. So what you actually have right now, politically speaking, are all national, international political powers presently under one main king, and that king is Satan. And Satan and his forces are beasts, and they're leading the world. And at this point in the tribulation period, the emphasis here is the king of kings is about to come back and take over the entire world. He's on the verge of coming back and establishing God's kingdom on this earth. It'll be a one kingdom reign, a one king reign. And he's going to take over and conquer the power of Satan. We may remember when Jesus was here on earth, Satan tried to offer him all the kingdoms if he would just fall down and worship him. He was trying to get Christ to bypass the cross. Don't go to the cross. I'll give you the world powers right now. Jesus didn't say, well, you don't have those to give. He didn't tell him that. He just basically turned the offer down. But what happens here in heaven is that all of us who are there anticipate this is about to happen. Finally, Jesus Christ is about to come back and get rid of these beasts. He's going to establish a righteous kingdom on this earth. And when Paul presented his message in Athens, he predicted that God, who's fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, heaven realizes that is about to happen right now. And there is this great worship scene here in Revelation. Which brings us to the fourth fact. The worship service features 24 elders. Now, I want to point out that point. Verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Let's just talk about this. These are elders at the highest possible place of honor that they could ever be. They're at the throne of God. And when they worship God, 
these elders, in total reverence for the Lord and worship, they fall on their faces before God. I think there's something that churches need to learn here about real worship. It should be reverent. I mean, if these elders here that are at the throne of God and a worship are falling down on their faces before the Lord, then it would seem to me that we as the people of God who go to church should go to church with a reverent spirit and attitude. I just really don't think it thrills the heart of God to go into a church and it's just all light and fluffy atmosphere. When you have elders here falling down on their faces, worshiping God, it would seem to me that we ought to be people who at least in our minds and hearts are humbled before the Lord when we come in here to worship. I mean, there's nobody who should go into a church and look up on a platform, see a bunch of punks who are wearing jeans and t-shirts with electric guitars and call that worship. That's not worship, not this kind of worship. This kind of worship is a worship that reverences God. I don't care how cute or entertaining it is. I don't care how many people you pack in. I'm telling you, at the throne of God, this is real worship here. There is a reverence for the Lord. Now, as we've gone through this book of Revelation, we cannot help but be impressed with how many times at various intervals that these elders have been involved in worshiping the Lord, and for different reasons. In chapter 4 and verse 10, they worship him as creator. In chapter 5, verse 8 and 14, they worship him as redeemer. In chapter 7, they worship him as the one who offers salvation. And now they're worshiping him as the one who's about to become the king of the world and take over the world. So the holiest and most biblical leaders that are in existence have a reverence for God, and they fall down before God, and they worship him. I think we all ought to come to church next Sunday with a real quiet reverence spirit of coming in here to worship a glorious God. I think if there's any application of that to us, that's it. Now, there are six realities about this worship. First of all, they identify God as the Lord God, the Almighty. The Lord God is the Almighty. They start with that, O Lord God, the Almighty. That title occurs in Revelation seven times. It is stressing the fact that God has all might to do whatever he wants to do at any time he wants to do it. And by the way, that is exactly what it's going to take to get these people out of office. It'll take Almighty God. I mean, these leaders of the world are not about to willingly surrender to Jesus Christ. Fact of the matter is, they've had many opportunities to do that. How many do you see doing it? I mean, right now, the leaders of the world could invite the Lord Jesus Christ into their lives and get serious about the word of God. You don't see too many doing that. It'll take an almighty God to get them out of office and get them out of power. And that's exactly what God is going to do. He's almighty God. He's going to come in there and use that almighty power, and he's going to literally remove them. The second way that he's identified is he's the God of eternality. 
Verse 17 says, because you are and who were, because you have taken your great power and you've begun to reign. So now the phrase who are and who were emphasizes the fact that this is eternal God. And God says, I want you to know, I've watched it all, I've seen it all, and I know it all. I've watched what's gone on, how these people have led people away from me and my truth, led people on paths of evil, pointed them away from what's right and pure and good and holy and pointed them away from things that I could bless. He said, I'm the eternal God. I've seen that. I'll put an end to it. The second reality is they thank God because he's taken his great power and he's begun to reign. Verse 17 says, and we give you thanks, O Lord. We give you thanks. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 28 that all authority had been given to him on heaven and earth. And now we're nearing the moment when he's going to use all that almighty authority to take over the heaven and the earth. And this final trumpet judgment announces that the kingdom reign is on the verge of happening. Even though, as near as we can determine chronologically, we're about three and a half years from the finale of all of this, this kicks it off. I mean, people in heaven realize we're getting close. This is like the celebration party of knowing that he's going to be inaugurated on that day when he comes back. The third reality is they thank God because God is pouring out his wrath judgment on godless nations. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came. You know, I think another lesson to learn from this is we need to be, if we're approaching God with the right frame of mind, be thankful people. We need to come into his presence with thanksgiving. They're coming into the presence of God here with thanksgiving in the context of the fact that he's pouring out wrath. And they're thanking God. We need to be people who are thankful people. And you live in a world that doesn't want you to be that. I'll tell you that right now. And there's not a lot when you look at this world to be thankful for. But when you look to the Lord, there's plenty to be thankful for. And that's what they're doing here. Political powers and political nations don't love God. Political power and nations don't love the Word of God. Just look at what's going on in Washington. They don't love God. They don't love the Word of God. In fact, at this point in the tribulation, godless powers have taken over nations for 42 months. They rejoiced at the death of God's two prophets. I mean, they had a celebratory party because there were two prophets who were proclaiming the word of God, they killed them. And then, when you come to this text, you'll learn it even goes deeper than that. These people on this earth hate God. They're enraged against God. That's the way it is in the nations of the world. This isn't just a little confusion. These nations are enraged against God. Why? Why? Because they do not want God to rule them or rule this world. That's what makes the majority of people so angry at God and his word. And this particular text in Revelation is closely connected to Psalm chapter 2. And I want to show you something from Psalm chapter 2. So if you just go back there just for a minute, Psalm chapter 2, I'll just show you something about these leaders of the world. In Psalm chapter 2, this actually has application to this very text that the nations are raging against God. And we read in Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of this earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying. Do you see that? 
These people who are in this world, they are not interested in what God's word says. They don't care about making decisions based on what God's word says. They hate God. They band together. They band together in their hatred of God. They band together in their hatred of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on right now with these beasts governing the world. But in heaven, what a different story. What a different scene. God is being praised. He's being worshipped. He's being thanked. And at this point, this worship service is breaking out because they realize he's about to put an end to all that stuff. This eternal God is about to go on and pour out divine justice. These people are about to get what they deserve. These nations who have mocked him and mocked his precious son, they're going to pay the price. Now in this grace age, and this is what people don't understand, God has been very good to the nations, very good to the nations. He's allowed nations to exist. He's allowed places where his people live to exist. He's provided good things for people that don't know him. He's provided good things for people who do not love him or worship him. He's offered eternal salvation to every sinner. He gives them the opportunity to come to Christ. And instead of these nations thanking him, instead of these nations seeking to be right with him, they hate him. They're enraged at the thought that someone would tell them what they have to do. And the truth is, most who are in sin hate the thought of God. They hate the thought of being controlled by God. They want to be their own God. They've made an idol of themselves. And they hate the thought of coming into judgment, even though they deserve it and they know it. But at this point in the tribulation, people will praise God for it. Because they're going to realize he's about to set up a kingdom on this earth. And he's about to reign forever. The fourth reality is they thank God because God's about to judge the dead. In verse 18, he says, and the time came for the dead to be judged. I think this is a reference to the fact that even though it's a few years off yet from a chronological assessment here, it's not that far away from when God is going to judge all unbelievers. And he's going to judge all unbelievers and heaven realizes that. All God mockers, all Bible haters, all unbelievers, they're going to be judged and they're praising God for that. And the fifth reality is they thank God because God's about to reward the saints. Verse 18 says, And time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, to destroy those who destroy the earth. You have three classes of believers named there that will be rewarded. You have the bondservants, the prophets, and the saints. There are some who take the position that they think it's about at this point when the Bema seat rewards are going to be issued in heaven. Some have taken that position here. I don't know that for sure. But I do know that all three of those that are named there fear the Lord. They fear the name of God from all walks of life. And when Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom on earth, those who did fear him and those who loved him and those who loved his word, they're going to be praising God. They're going to be rewarded abundantly. The sixth reality is they thank God because he's about to destroy those who destroyed the earth. Verse 18, and destroy those who destroy the earth. Do not miss that point because that's what godless political leaders do. Godless political leaders, godless religious leaders, and godless people 
destroy, destroy anything connected to God. They have their own systems of thinking. They lie. They cheat. They'll do anything but admit truth. They'll do anything but come to terms with their own sin and deal with it honestly before the Lord. And God said, I'm going to destroy them. I'll destroy them all. And at this point in heaven, and we will be there at this point, those of us that are there are going to just be praising God for this. We'll have actually, think about it, we'll have actually lived through the slop we're seeing now. We'll have actually lived through this. We'll know the slop that's down here and the evil. We've seen the deterioration of what is taking place in the United States of America. We've just watched it go down the drain. So we're going to be there just clapping our hands, enjoying this worship service. Because we realize, well, it's about time that you go down there and take care of this. Which brings us to the fifth fact. The worship service features the temple of God. I love this in verse 19. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. I I like that. I like that. See, Satan and his forces, they can attack stuff here on earth. They can't touch heaven. They can't touch this temple of God in heaven. And I would understand that at this point, God is going to just open that up. And it's very conceivable that these people would be able to just see that. I mean, see this throne open up. They're hearing this worship and in light of what he says in just a second here i think it's very conceivable that he's just opening the sky and letting him see this great celebration that's going on in heaven i think this will be visible now i think that this temple that's in heaven is different than the temple that john measured that's here on earth we know that because in verse 2 of chapter 11 he said measure the temple but the court that's outside the temple don't measure it well there's no such place in heaven So I would suspect you're getting two glimpses here, one of a temple that's in heaven, which is indicative of the temple that's on earth, but the temple on earth is about to be taken over by the Antichrist, and so what God is basically saying is, I still have my place of worship here. And then, in verse 19, he brings out the fact, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. Boy, there's a big, uh, where'd that ark of the covenant go? There are people looking for that. Well, we know there's sure a copy of it in heaven because it's stated right here. There's a copy of that Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark of the Covenant is something that basically says God is faithful to fulfill every one of his covenant promises. God is faithful to his word. His word is sacred. And he will fulfill everything that he has promised to fulfill. Which brings us to the sixth fact, and is the worship service features cosmological heavenly signs. At the end of verse 19, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So here you have, get the visualization of this. You have this worship service taking place in heaven. Great praise being offered to the Lord. You have these things these people are hearing, probably seeing, as they look up into the the sky and then all of a sudden God just busts loose with a bunch of thunder and lightning and an earthquake and a hailstorm. Now some of those things have been seen at Mount Sinai when God revealed himself on that mountain to Israel and I think there is probably an application for the fact that things are about to turn toward Israel that thunder and lightning 
and fire and smoke certainly was on Mount Sinai. We saw that when God came and revealed himself to Israel there. But what he's doing now is he's basically saying to the whole world, I'm about to come take you over. And people in heaven are praising God. That's what this worship scene is all about. He's going to take over the world. So it's kind of like election night where... You know, you have the candidates elected, but you get a little gap of time between that and the inauguration. I think that's what's happening here. Let me leave you with three thoughts from this passage we've analyzed tonight. Thought number one, and I certainly think this is legitimate. I don't think we can argue this point. When we come to worship the Lord at church, we should come reverently. We should come reverently. I think there should be a sense about this. I think that pleases the Lord when his people come reverently. Now, we're not a place that's given to legalistic, ritualistic traditions of men and rules, but I think there ought to be a spirit of reverence about us. I think we ought to prepare our minds and hearts when we walk into a worship service to ask God to minister to us in that service. Secondly, you can know this, one day God is going to take over this world. That's clear. God is going to take over this world. That's not a debatable point. That's a reality. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. And finally, you need to understand this. Political leaders today, religious leaders, they're beasts. They're beasts. That's what Daniel called them. That's what God called them in the book of Daniel. Beast. All these political leaders. They are turning people away from God. They're turning people away from the truth of God, and they are going to face the wrath of God. That clearly shows up here in Revelation chapter 11. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious, inspired word. Thank you for your people who've taken time out of their lives to be here tonight. That shows you they do reverence you, and they do reverence your word, because this church, Lord, we're pretty no-nonsense here. We do our best to have reverent worship, and we've got a sizable congregation that loves that. I want to thank you for each and every one of our dear people, and I pray you protect them and watch over them and bless them. Lord, we certainly would pray that you'd come get us soon. We can't wait for that. In Jesus' name, amen.